Hey there, welcome to the Deeper Podcast. A podcast that's all about how we can love the hell out of this world in those small steps of courage and love that add up over time. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and I'm here with Reverend Elaine. Hi, Sean. You're so Hi, everybody. You're so enthusiastic. That is truly my number one adjectival descriptor. We are starting a new series uh, in which we are exploring first times. And Elaine kicked us off with a message all about why first times are easy and uh, a breeze (laughs) and, you know, really great. Yeah. Like, basically, if you don't master every first time, there's something wrong with you. That's what my that's what this episode is. People left energized, engaged and feeling great about themselves. (laughs) Well, I hope people did leave feeling energized or inspired, but it was definitely not about fantastic first times. It was about a different first times lovely <laughs> fantabulous, fantabulous. <laughs> so as you may be getting the subtext here you were preaching more about the terrible first times yeah that experience that we often have when we try something new or we're thrust into a new circumstance in which uh, things don't always go to plan and i uh, i thought i would ask you about the first time you preached a sermon <laughs> Well, the funny thing is, um, I can't tell you what that sermon was about. I really can't tell you anything about it. But I remember where I was. I was the intersection, the northwest corner of 57th and Woodlawn in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago in the chapel, uh, whole chapel, first Unitarian church. Gosh, I can't, I don't know if I'm saying the name of the congregation right, actually, but I was, um, a student at Meadville Lombard Theological School was taking a preaching class taught by the Reverend David Bamba, who I have such tremendous respect and love for. And uh, the thing I remember most. So I remember, of course, being terrified. It's terrifying. It's so hard to write a rough draft of a sermon. And honestly, <laughs> that is still my experience every single time. So you know, it's hard to write, uh, especially for the first time. It was hard to get up in front of all of my peers and step into that vulnerable place of preaching a, a sermon. Um, no, my heart was beating hard and my hands were sweating. But the thing I remember most is that, you know, the lights were just on as they are on Sunday morning. So you can see everybody's face. You're looking into everybody's faces as you're speaking. And towards the back was my professor, David, and his wife, Beverly. And David is a very stoic person. He's very loving. He's not a, wouldn't call him a smiler. Uh, And he's, And I looked at David and I could see that he was wiping his eyes. And at one point he blew his nose. And I thought, you know, this story, I can't believe that my first sermon is so moving that I have moved David Bamba to tears. (laughs) And he came into class the next day and that's where we were going to debrief it. And the first thing he says is something like, my cold symptoms were driving me crazy last night. I couldn't stop blowing my nose. (laughs) I really don't feel good. <laughs> and I realized that <laughs> it was not about me. Uh, he actually just had a runny nose and watery eyes uh, for other reasons. Do you remember 
like how did that change your experience of what you thought had happened i felt really disappointed um you know i really wanted to i wanted to impress david i wanted him to think i was a good preacher uh i think i i loved the story because you know i think he was not very impressed with any of us which isn't very surprising uh, and, you don't just start an amazing preacher. No. And so I, I loved this story that I kind of entertained for about 14 hours, <laughs> which was, I must be so gifted that I made him cry and everybody else was just kind of a mediocre beginner. But nope, I was also a mediocre beginner. And I remember then the feedback that I got, you know, it was, I didn't totally bomb, but uh, the feedback was, wow, Elaine. You no one has it. ever nailed this just like you, you why, did. Why don't you, you don't need this class. Like, you need to skip this class. Why don't you teach this class? Yeah, I, I need to <laughs> well, and I, I I never take you as a a person that is um uh what's the word the opposite of humble. Like I feel oh, like you're you're just filled with you're, unjustified like, pride. Yeah, or I feel like you're you're like pretty often tapped into yourself. But I feel like that is a really um a he. Uh, I recognize myself in that that way of like wanting those first times to uncover something deep within me that like says that I get to skip over being a beginner. Oh yeah. You're like maybe this is I've uncovered the seek my secret talent and when I pick up this paintbrush I'm going to realize that I'm actually amazing at painting. Yes. You know, I feel like I was fed stories like that as a kid. I think about I read so many books where I feel like you know, the girl who was kind of a nobody noticed her and then she came back from one summer away and she was totally beautiful. Right. And, yes. Uh, or, you know, stories of prodigies discovering their true talents. And I just, you know, you and I are, are people who have t talents. And I think all of our listeners are too. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't, I don't think I've that. ever had that experience. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, so early on in my kind of ministerial formation, I had this, I had this weird circumstance in which I went to a school, an undergrad that also was training clergy. Oh, and wow. so I took some pastoral care classes in undergrad and there was two of them. And so I took one of them and, uh, as part of the pastoral care class, you got to you had to you had to practice, and so I talked to my church and I visited with shut-ins and folks who couldn't really leave, and that was my first experience, um, and it was you know great, and I felt really good about it. And then I took the second class, and in the second class, you had to do something called a verbatim, and Elaine knows what that is, um, which is that after a pastoral encounter, you need to basically write down word for word, everything that was said, everything that you thought, everything that went on in the room. It's like you have to write a like television play or like yeah. a, a script of everything that happened, including all of your inner. And so in my second class, I was not working at the church. I was working at a long term uh, rehab hospital. And my supervisor got me to do one of these. And I remember going and having this visit and thinking, oh, wow, I did really great. Like, I've done this before. So it's not my first time, per se, but it was like my first time kind of being like checked. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I got the script 
And he, we were about to read it through because that's what he said we were going to do. And he said, okay, I'm going to be you and you're going to be the patient. And I was like, okay. And then we proceeded to walk through the entire script of the encounter. And I realized uh, what a terrible chaplain. <laughs> I let us. I just like, I was like trying to say things that were like, wisdomy or like profound in ways that were just like really vapid mm-hmm. you know trying to be a chaplain it's like what would a chaplain sound like maybe i'll say those sorts of things rather than really kind of like being present to what was going on and then after we finished reading through it i we just kind of sat there <laughs> and, and, I, and i feel like there we didn't need any more didactic there needed to be no more lessons that day. Right. It was just like, oh, it's very clear what happened. And I felt in that moment like all of my all of my confidence was like gone. And all of the like practice that I thought I had, I was like, oh no, this is actually the time I'm starting. Mm-hmm. Like this is what this is when it's real. Mm-hmm. Um and it was a really good lesson. I'm really glad it I did that. I had that experience. Because it was humbling. Um, and I was glad I was in a class that forced me to keep going. Because, um, like, the next verbatim was a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of, you know, you work your way out. But it was a big mental hit to who I was. And I still remember it to this day. Yeah. Those kind of moments are such great teachers if you can tolerate. I guess this kind of goes to the sermon. Bit, but you really have to be willing to tolerate the profound discomfort of encountering your own mistakes. Yeah. That's really hard there's this, to do. There's this quote from Ira Glass that I really like, and I'm, I'm not going to quote it specifically or uh, not going to read it out. But essentially he says, so Ira Glass, creator of like This American Life, very iconic in the kind of radio storytelling world. Um, he talks about how when you're doing anything creative, and I think it's beyond creativity, really. He says that your taste outstrips your skill early on. And I think that's so true. Like, you know, I'd listened to a lot of sermons before I preached my first sermon. And I could tell the ones that I was engaged with and the ones I would want to emulate in terms of the impact. And I, the ones I definitely didn't. But just having that taste in things that I liked and were moving does, does not mean that you can do that. Um, and so living in that gap in between like what you think you should be or what you're aiming for or what you know would be the desired output, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a long journey to get there. And it's a lot of different first times to be able to withstand that, that discomfort you're talking. Yeah, absolutely. Do you remember your first sermon? I remember my first sermon that. I preached at the First Unitarian Congregation of Ottawa. It was during the summer. Um, And looking, I remember a few years later, I think it was in seminary and I was in a preaching class. And I remember looking at this. And I remember being like, that was, that was, there was way too much stuff in Uh, Like, I think I had, like, 17 sources, 
and like so many different readings. It was just so crowded and full. Yeah. I think I was trying to like say everything and prove that I was this maybe a prove that I was competent. Um, but the the speaking part for me, it wasn't my first time because I I debated in starting in middle school. So standing up in front of people and talking was not scary. I think about that all the time. So my love since very young has always been theater. And I had a story even in high school through like really up until I got to seminary. I thought, well, you know, I just got to play around all those times I got up on stage, uh, you know, all the improv, all the just passing, crossing that threshold of discomfort mm-hmm. over and over again. You know, it was just for fun. And then I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe the amazing, you know, muscles I built. Yeah. Completely. That's so totally right. Because, you know, standing up in front of people is like, oh, I know this part. Yeah, exactly. And I, but what I now I need to work on is not the terror of talking to people. It's how to say things. That are worth listening to. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is like a difference like in because I did theater, too. And, you know, when you're doing classical like theater, you don't see the audience. Like often like the lights are so bright that you can't really see yes. their reactions. But in like improv and preaching, you see them. Yes. And so you're constantly it's like this interesting uh, like dance that you're doing with yeah. them. In which, you know, like your professor, you're like reading, reading into him. And I bet you preached a better sermon because you thought he was having an emotional reaction, yeah. even though he wasn't. Because you're reading into it and that like enlivens you and that like gives you this energy to react to uh, in a way that um, is meaningful. But also, if you've never had that experience of staring at people who are staring at you, mm-hmm. it's a can be completely overwhelming. Right. And then everybody puts masks on. Like when we came back oh, in yes. person and then yes. that was so weird. Yes, that was so weird. Because you get so, anyway, we this might be a tangent, but it actually becomes this, this wonderful communal experience that you have to see the people and to be together in the moment and then to have half of people's faces obscured. Um, it was like it, it really broke our, my modes of being able to read our togetherness. Uh, in church together. I think we should probably dive into I think we should. (laughs) So we're going to listen to Elaine's message all on those wonderful, beautiful first times that always go well. And we'll be back in a sec. All right, Elaine, is there anything that you want to add now that you've said this? Hmm. Our reading today is by the Unitarian Universalist minister and poet Ling, Lin Ung. It's entitled On the Other Side, and it invokes some of those stories that you may have grown up with as a child. 
And so I invite you to kind of cast your attention to those fairy tales and those stories that might have been formative for you as she invokes them in this piece. On the other side. Through the looking glass, down the rabbit hole, into the wardrobe and out into the enchanted forest where animals talk and dangers lurk and nothing works quite the way it did before, you have fallen into a new story. It is possible that you are much bigger or smaller than you thought. It is possible to drown in the ocean of your own tears. It is possible that mysterious friends have armed you with magical weapons that you don't yet understand, but which you will need to save your own life and the world. Everything here is foreign. Nothing quite makes sense. That's how it works. Don't confuse the beginning of the story with the A few years back, back when I lived in Minneapolis, I found myself in my Toyota Prius, stopped at a familiar intersection on my usual route home from an evening church meeting. As it happened multiple times a week, the light turned from red to green. I hit the gas to pass through the intersection, except on this night, the car that should have been stopping at its red light to let me pass, well, that car just kept on going. Kept on going and smashed into me. I was fine and the Prius was totaled. After the police came, after the sleepy looking young woman who ran into me apologized, my friend picked me up in her Subaru Forester. I had to kind of jump a little and foist myself in and I loved feeling so safe and protected from my higher up position in this SUV as she drove me back to my house that night. We needed a replacement car and we leapt at the chance to borrow an old Isuzu Trooper from my husband's parents. Big, boxy, and high up off the ground, the Trooper was a tank compared to the Prius. It was so high up off the ground, I practically had to hurl myself into the driver's seat. It could plow through snow and ice. It felt safe. The only thing is that it had a manual transmission. And in my late 30s, I had never learned to drive a stick shift. But I already knew how to drive, right? And I'm a smart, competent person. How hard could it be? Okay, this is where I wish I could insert video footage of me in an empty parking lot as a grown woman trying to use a manual transmission, cursing and crying while failing to engage the clutch over and over again. It was so hard. It took so much longer than I expected. And I felt really stupid the whole time. Finally, I got the hang of it enough to get out on the road. And suddenly I saw the world through new eyes. 
My new objective became avoiding hills at all costs. So how could I do preschool drop-off and glide into work while also stopping on hills as few times as possible? And let's say if I did accidentally roll backward on an incline and smash into someone else's car, which I may have done on floor six of the Mall of America parking structure, how could I explain that I was a functional grown person who could not actually handle driving a car even though I had been a driver for like 25 years? This was just one of the many, many times I have found myself surprised by just how hard and embarrassing and scary it is to do things for the first time, to be a beginner. I cringe at an actual thought that I had many times when I was pregnant with my first child, which went something like, I have a master's degree, so I can totally handle a newborn. Spoiler alert, that does not make any sense. The birth center showed me their mandatory video about how infants cry a lot, and I was surprised because that was actually news to me. How many times have I found myself overwhelmed on the first day of a new job simply by trying to remember everyone's names and roles, the location of the bathroom, and how to log into the multiple applications that we are using to communicate and collaborate and all of this is second nature to everyone else there. Life is filled with first times. It's part of being alive, and it happens our whole lives. This struck me in the most poignant way a couple of months ago when I was visiting our beloved Karen Hart, who was taken from us too soon and too quickly by leukemia this past August. As we do in our community for those who are dying, I visited Karen in hospice care to talk to her about her wishes for her last days and hours of life. Who would she want there? What would she find comforting? Certain music, certain kinds of touch or fragrance. And after some slow and deliberate consideration, Karen turns to me and says, I don't really know, Elaine. I've never done this before. Even at the very ending of our lives, we are doing something for the very first time. Our first time experiences can come in all kinds of flavors. One flavor that we may dream about a lot and may be a bit more rare in reality is when something we've been looking forward to experiencing for the first time turns out to meet or exceed our expectations. Five out of five stars, it's exhilarating. This totally happens. Or maybe it's a first time that catches us by surprise and we're just stuff our feet with joy or maybe just relaxed contentment. But there are other flavors of first times, too, and those are more of what we're focusing on this morning. Like those first times when we've long anticipated a special experience and it ends up being disappointing 
hard or maybe just too different from what we had expected. Or those first times we never would have asked for. First time being a caregiver to a loved one. First time being single after a relationship ends. First time being someone with cancer. First time doing life without your mother alive or your father or your spouse or a child or some heavy combination of these beloved people. And then some first times we initiate and it's from a place of real and raw need because we have come to a point where we're forced to admit that the way that we have been living is not working for us and there has to be a better way. So many flavors of beginnerdom and so many of them are awkward, frustrating, frightening, and sometimes just downright painful. Why is it so hard to do things for the first time? Could it be because our brain is building new neuropathways? That our brain is actually changing in response to learning a new thing? According to neuro neuroscientist David Eagleman, the brain of someone who's just learning to do something, like play tennis, for example, that brain is expending way more energy than an elite tennis pro whose brain is actually using almost no energy because they have burned that skill into their circuitry of their brain already. Why is it so hard to do things for the first time? Could it be because we live in a culture that signals to us that if we aren't feeling happy and living a fully optimized, efficient life, then we're not doing life right? And if life is painful or ambiguous, or we feel like we just suck at whatever we're muddling through, well, then we're losing at life. Could first times be so hard because they remind us of everything we don't have control over in our lives and leave us feeling almost unbearably vulnerable? Could it be because we fear that if we are awkward or excruciatingly slow or just bad at a new thing, that maybe it will always be that way? And actually, maybe we're kind of bad at everything? Sometimes we don't realize that we're already in the middle of a first time. Starting in mid-August when my child began middle school, I had this realization that actually I must be a way worse parent than I realized because things were getting really confusing and complicated and I seemed to be doing the wrong thing a lot. And I was literally listening to social scientist Brene Brown talk about first times to start preparing for this sermon on first times. And I realized, oh, I've never been a parent of a middle schooler before. I'm having a first time. And this sounds really obvious, but it was not obvious to me in that moment. I just felt how bad it felt. She calls these TFTs, or terrible first times. 
That's not true. Actually, she calls them FFTs. She's using a different adjective. It starts with F. But we're going to stick to terrible and TFTs because we're in church. So what do I want to do when I'm encountered with something that makes me feel incompetent, awkward, and scared? Well, I just want to run away. Which might sound like a neutral option, opting out, taking a pass. That's just kind of a neutral option. Sameness is neutral, right? But the truth is that when we try to avoid or bypass the discomfort of first times, we invite decline and disconnection to be our companion and it can hurt us. Sometimes this avoidance happens in small, incremental, seemingly innocuous ways, like, hmm, I notice I'm routinely avoiding trying new things, or meeting new people, or going new places. Sometimes we avoid the pain of newness through a more overt checking out or numbing out. Substance use, overwork, good old-fashioned denying the emotions. Whatever it is, we're cutting ourselves off from our emotional reality, from our discomfort and distress, and we're living a divided life. The thing about humans is that we're built for adaptation, change, and growth. Movement, it's our thing. We live in a world where truth and insight are always revealing themselves to us anew. And so a posture of turning away from beginnings is a posture of turning away from life itself. However, on the flip side, the weird and amazing thing about terrible first times, TFTs, is that although we may want to do almost anything to avoid them, if we can manage to tolerate the discomfort and vulnerability, TFTs have so much value for us. Often, terrible first times end up offering wisdom, open-heartedness, resilience, connection. They keep us alive and whole. And for me, this is, this is the God piece. This is the awe piece. How something so terrifying, so repellent, can end up shaping us in ways we didn't know we needed, in ways we never imagined we even had in us. This whole process of becoming as humans is so mysterious as we're led down paths that feel strange and frightening and the world is turned upside down and it ends up opening up new worlds inside of us and among us. So I want to invite you now to take a moment and turn inward and get yourself into a place of memory. You might want to close your eyes because so I'm going to invite you in a second to review in your mind's eye some of the first times that you have lived through and lived to tell the tale. Those first times that have made you who you are today. I'm just going to offer some ideas and then we'll have some silence to reflect. You might want to consider the first time you traveled alone. The first time you did something in your professional life completely on your own. First time letting people know who you truly are. 
a first time standing up to someone intimidating or unkind. Take some time to bear witness to all you've been through. So I'm wondering what you might have discovered. I want to invite you, if you're feeling courageous, to raise your hand and share with us a first time that came up for you. You can share it just in a simple way. It doesn't have to be monumental, although it can be monumental. But if you raise your hand, Reverend Sean will come to you with the mic. And if this is your first time speaking in front of the congregation, we love you and we're here for you. When I was 11 years old, surprisingly, stuttering a lot, just as my life, I always did. But um, it was a family gathering, I don't know, 50 people, I think a holiday. And I stood up first and I said, the women have worked so hard. Why don't we let them go first? Well, it obviously didn't work in the culture that I grew up in, but that was a pretty big thing. I was definitely told that I will never do that again, but anyway. So I was thinking about um, the first time I was a teacher and I was standing in front of the class and it was a middle school class and I realized that nothing would happen until I did something. They were just waiting for me. So I extended that as long as I could and then started to teach, but it was a very interesting moment to feel how much power I held in that position. Um, the first person that I came out to was my mom many years ago, and the words were stuck in my throat to the point where I felt like I couldn't breathe. And she was saying, just say it, just say it. And uh, I said, no, you say it. And, and, and she said, she said, no, no, you, you have to say it. So I said it and, you know, just getting over that first time that I thought was going to be the end. Like once those words came out of my mouth, I thought that's it, right? I'm just going to fall down here and it's all over. But it didn't, and it got better, and then uh, time passed, and it became, hey, guess what? Uh, for me, it's the first and only time that I gave birth. When you prepare your body for 40 weeks, thinking it'll go one way, and uh, it doesn't. But I'm here. We're here. We're all here. We love you. Thanks for sharing. I think we have time for two more people. Please. Mine was the first time I traveled on my own after my divorce and wanting to still live my life. And I went to Greece. And... Well, with a small group, but it was me planning it. And I felt when I did it, I was proud of myself, but it was hard to 
take that step. At 14 years old, taking a train from Washington, D.C. to Vicksburg, Mississippi, to go to school. Thank you so much for courageously sharing your first times with us and being willing to share. Let's give a round of applause, I see. Those stories hold so much courage. And just to imagine even in the space, in our online space, all the courageous stories we're holding together, uh, it's really amazing. So I wonder, how can we keep saying yes to TFT's terrible first times when they feel so bad? Brene Brown has some advice for us, which I've modified a little bit to try to make it more memorable. So I started all the steps with the letter N. Name it, normalize it, not gonna last forever, new expectations. So it starts with naming it. This is the most critical piece because we can't make meaning of something. We can't understand something if we haven't first acknowledged it. Uh, and I, you know, identified it for what it is. And naming things can feel really scary. That can be a scary first leap because I don't know about you, but I'm often afraid that if I name the hard thing, it's just going to get bigger and worse and more real and just like eat me alive. But the truth is that naming things doesn't give the thing power. It gives us power. And then normalize it. So it sounds like Okay, this is how it feels to be doing something for the first time. Mustering courage when I am scared is uncomfortable, but these feelings are normal and they make sense. And then the next N, not going to last forever. So this is our impermanence piece. We might say to ourselves, okay, I'm in the middle of a TFT right now. I feel like a helpless moron but it won't always be this way. It won't always be this fresh, this new, just like this forever. And there's a chance it might get better. As our reading this morning reminded us, do not confuse the beginning of the story with the end. And finally, new expectations. You might say, okay, I'm not going to be successful or at ease in this right away. In fact, this is probably going to be hard for a while, and I'm here for it. I'm going to change what I expect to happen as much as I can. So name it, normalize it, not going to last forever, new expectations. I think this is very clever alliteration. So I thought maybe it would be helpful to walk through this with an example that I offer with my child's permission and consent. So name it. I am the parent of a middle schooler for the first time. Normalize it. I am in a TFT, a terrible first time. And it makes sense that I feel confused, vulnerable, and pretty dumb. Not going to last forever. It won't be exactly like this forever, 
middle school is not the end of the story. Can I get an amen? Yes. New expectations. Okay. Friend drama, phone drama, homework stress, tummy aches. These are all part of the landscape a little sooner than I expected. So I'm just going to buckle up and expect some turbulence and pray for some clear skies. I have to say that for me, just the relief of naming something, figuring out that I'm having a terrible first time, it's so relieving. It's, it's uh, so helpful. I name it to myself. I sometimes say it to myself a lot. I feel like it lets me off the hook. I sometimes just tell everybody about it. I would prefer to feel put together and in control, but wow, it is amazing how feeling vulnerable, feeling broken open, it opens us up to connection with each other. And this is the good news that I want to end on today. When TFTs break us open, it also unlocks this super-powered potential to connect with other people with empathy and compassion. We can more easily see each other's humanity. We feel our dependence on one another and our connections with each other. They make us more whole. And I would say during a TFT, self-care, super important. And take that care beyond the focus on the self. See what it feels like to care for someone else, show up for someone else. Helps make you feel better. And when you're feeling vulnerable, sometimes we're in a place to really empathize and love someone else who's feeling a vulnerability too. So this is the connecting potential that is there for us as a Foothills community as we enter into a first time together with our new sanctuary. And I wanna be clear, I am not saying that it's gonna be terrible. It is gonna be joyful and empowering and beautiful. I know that. And as we move into our new sanctuary, into this next era in the life of this amazing 125 year old community, we're gonna have a lot of first times and new learning together. And sometimes it might feel like we're just trying over and over again to engage our clutch and get the wheels moving. I mean, after all, we've been a church for over a century. We know how to do this, right? But then something kind of simple or mechanical might just kind of make us stumble a little bit. But now we all have this collective shorthand we can use together. Well, we're having a TFT. It's a terrible first time. And then we can name it, normalize it. No, it's not going to last forever and create some new expectations. And we won't confuse the beginning with the end. May we courageously move into the unknown together with a willingness to endure discomfort head on, depend on each other, and love each other into wholeness. There's no need to avoid the hills. We'll keep learning and growing as we go. May it be so. Amen. Well, this is just the beginning of this first time series. Next week, I am going to be talking about failure. 
I have been looking forward to this for weeks. I know. I feel like that's extra pressure. Gretchen said that. Oh, no. Gretchen said that she couldn't preach this sermon. And now you're really looking forward to it. So now I'm like, oh, my goodness. No, I just I'm going to fail at the failure ceremony. No, I I seek out failure stories. I listen to failure podcasts. It's just. Yeah. What do you love about failures? I. um, I love hearing other people's stories of failures. I think for me, the experience of growing up, which I'm kind of experiencing again now that my kids are growing up. Mm -hmm is really outgrowing the the incorrect story that everybody else has it together except mm. for you. Mm. I just can't get enough of that story. That And to me, I don't know, what I love about church is that it's a place of never-ending resilience stories. Even just to walk into the congregation, once you get to know people and you know what they've lived through, to just see that they're they're here another week and they've experience the hard things they have and like here we all are together so i don't know i feel like it's very humanizing and equalizing to talk about failures and to talk about them in the past tense because clearly we've kept on going yeah i feel like we don't often talk about them and we I don't know. There, there's a sense of like there's the times that we enjoy other people's failures in that sense of like that schadenforda kind of sense. Yeah. Of, like, but then there's also like I, I like listening to the How I Built This podcast where yes. they interview folks where they talk about how they built companies. And so much of the story usually is about how they failed so many different times. Yes. I mean, my favorite fail podcast is Elizabeth Day's, I think it's called How to Fail or something. And she's talking with celebrities or with very accomplished people about all the failures that led up to their accomplishments. So it's the it's the yeah. same idea. I'm not interested in, you know, I'm not taking pleasure in someone else's pain. It's sort of like a compassion mm-hmm. practice or just... A humanizing almost. It, it is. It's yeah. very humanizing. Exactly. Yeah. I do. I did think of just really quick. <laughs> right after we talked about first times. I went rock climbing to a climbing gym for one of the very first times. And my daughter was giving me all kinds of feedback. So were the people around me. And then I wanted kind of to cry a little bit, actually. And I thought, you know, I'm just doing this for the first time. So I'm just going to change my expectations. I'm going to name it. I'm going to normalize it. And then the next day, my husband, Jason, started a new job. He came downstairs and he said, I'm so glad that we talked about first times yesterday because I'm having the hardest time logging into all these different things and I feel so stupid. <laughs> and you're like, yes, I know. So we're just first time in it over first time there in, in Tenbring household. Well, uh, I'm glad, glad that you found the message and brought it to all <laughs> of us. Just live, live in that message. That well, thanks everyone for listening to the Deeper Podcast. It's so great to have you. I would just saying, if you want to drop me a line and share your failure stories, I would love to hear them. Um, I have been asking folks to share their stories, and I have some. um, Some of them are amazing. Um, Some of them are so amazing that I can't share them (laughs) on the podcast or uh, in in worship. Um, But if you have a story about, yeah, like the trials and the struggles that you've gone through and what that has taught you about about life, I'd so love to hear them and 
hoping to bring a few of them into worship and into the next podcast. So hopefully you'll you'll hear from some of them next week. So thank, thanks for listening and until next time.